Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport, your host, as well as the director of Creating a Family. In addition to this show, we also have tons of resources on our website for you, uh, whether you're thinking about foster care or adoption, and you can find them at creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking with Sarah Centillis. She is the author of a newly released book by Random House titled Stranger Care. Her other books include Draw Your Weapons and Breaking Up with God. She is a graduate of the Yale University as well as the Harvard Divinity School. Welcome, Sarah, to Creating a Family. I am truly looking forward to talking to you today. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you for talking with me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. This uh, Stranger Care is a beautifully written book, and it captures both the promise and quite often the failure of foster care. It's also, it just feels to me like such a beautiful portrait of love with no promise of a future. I I truly enjoyed the book, and, and I, I I mean this in a way, I hope you don't take it wrong. I, I wasn't sure I would. This is a, uh, you know, we, we was approached about uh, interviewing you and approached about reading the book, and I thought, well, yes, but... You know, I, I, I live, I swim in these waters. I, you know, foster care is what we do and, and, and support here at Creating a Family. And I wasn't sure that, you know, I thought it would just be another book by another foster parent, not, not dismissing those, but, but honestly, there are quite a few of them. This book was so much more and it was, it was so beautifully written. It was just, I truly enjoyed it. So thank you. Thank you for writing it and thank you for capturing all that is foster care. Thanks for reading it, even though you weren't quite sure you wanted to. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I'm very glad that I did. Uh, we're going to start. I want to ask you, how did you come? Uh, I know it from the book, but I want you to talk about to our listeners. How did you come to the decision to become a foster parent? Or or per- perhaps the better question is, did you come to that decision? Or were you really trying to become an adoptive parent? I became a foster parent kind of the long way around. I I had always wanted to be a mother. Um, and then I wasn't so sure if I wanted to be a mother because of the way that motherhood is framed in our culture, the cultural ether kind of as, as both holy work and trap. And so I was scared of it. Um, <laughs> by the time I admitted to myself and to my partner that I wanted to be a mother, that it was my deepest longing, um, I realized I was married to a, a person who did not want to bring another human being onto the planet. He thought that there were enough humans, that um, humans were causing damage to the environment, and there were 500,000 children in foster care who needed homes. So why didn't we do that? So, you know, Eric, that's my husband's name. He wants to live in a world where we tend the earth. And I want to live in a world where we tend one another. And so foster care became our common ground. And we decided to become licensed foster parents. Okay. And and when you went in, were you thinking you were going to be a foster parent or were you thinking you were going to be an adoptive parent or was your thinking muddled? Yes, my thinking was muddled both. I remember that one of the first meetings I went to in the, I lived in Oregon first when we started the training and there, you could check a box if you wanted to foster and a box if you wanted to adopt. And I checked both. (laughs) I don't know if you were (laughs) supposed to choose one or the other, but we thought that being foster, we, we understood we would foster probably first and that we might have many children in our home before we found a a child that we could be a permanent home for. But I thought that being uh, foster parents who wanted to adopt would be a positive thing. I've done a lot of reading about how 
children in the foster care system are moved from home to home to home to home to home. And so I thought, well, if we can give a, a child a permanent place, a forever family, then um, even better. But what I underestimated was how fierce and immediate our attachment to our foster daughter would be once she was placed with us. And then I underestimated the difficulty or the the heartbreak or the terror or the helplessness when you're asked to hand a child back. It's not just that mm-hmm. you're releasing a child. Sometimes I'm sure you you return a child to a beautiful family situation. And other times you're asked to return a child to a situation that may or may not be safe. And that that was much more challenging than I anticipated. And, you know, honestly, I think the truth is, Almost always. No, I shouldn't say that. Most of the time would probably be the majority of the time. You're returning a child to what feels to you as a less than ideal situation. That is just the, we're going to talk about that some in the, in the, uh, as we move along, but that it just feels like it's not ideal. It's not perfect mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. families don't heal that quickly. And, and sometimes no. there's systemic and fundamental issues within family systems and within people. Part of the problem is that foster care is being asked to pick up after all of these other systems that have failed, you know, structural poverty, racism, misogyny, mm-hmm. lack of housing, lack of health care, lack of mental health care, lack of treatment for drug addiction. You know, there's so many things wrong that, of course, mm-hmm. it's not going to heal. Those, those structural problems are what lead people into the foster care system, and it's not going to it's going to take more than six weeks or six months or six years to heal that brokenness. Yeah. And so whenever the child is returned, it never feels, it it so often feels like there is no perfect solution. There's just, you can see both sides, but but it's the real loser always feels like it's the child, which of course it is. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. I want you to read a, a section from your book. Let's start with page 236, the last paragraph. Yes. I'd imagined foster care as somehow ethically cleaner than private adoptions or fertility treatments, but it became more complicated and I became more complicit by the day. Children taken from parents who want them, children taken from parents who struggle with addiction, children taken from parents who are poor, children taken from parents who abuse them because their parents abused them and their parents and their parents and on and on and on. There's no innocent space, my professor would say when I was in graduate school, nowhere to stand but right here. I love that. And I thought it was such a perfect way of capturing the the complexity and I think a lot of people go in thinking that foster care is ethically cleaner. And and uh, do you believe? I assume you think that that is a myth now. But but I but I'd love to get your opinion on it, having survived uh, the foster care system as a foster parent. <laughs> survived. That's a, an interesting word. There's no. I think there's. No- you know, what that quote from my professor at the end, that there's no innocent space, there's nowhere to stand by right here. I think that's true that that any if we live in a culture and I, I think we do, we live in a country and a culture that is not pro family, that's not pro child, that any time you are trying to offer support or be a home temporary or permanent for a child whose parents can't or won't or unable to take care of them at the time, then you are part of those structural problems as well. I don't think 
you know, I think if we had if we had no racism, if we had no poverty, if we had adequate housing, if we had good family leave policies, if women were supported yeah. to be mothers, then um, we wouldn't probably have very many kids in the foster care system, and we probably wouldn't have very many children being placed for adoption. So parts of those systems are the effects of of the break in other other structures that um, aren't yeah. working and aren't aren't pro child, as you say. And and in addition to all the other issues you raised, I would also say. Uh, parent education. You know, we aren't trained. I mean, for foster parents, we are. We go through a training. But I often think all parents should be, I don't know, obviously this is never going to happen and there's no way to require it. <laughs> but I do think that all parents need a certain level of training. I know when we left the hospital with our first child, I thought they should not be letting us go. We do not <laughs> know enough. <laughs> and and they, and, but I think we all could use that. And I do think, as as you point out, there are generational issues oftentimes, and, and, and quite frankly, a number of, of foster children who are taken into the foster care system are children of children who had, were raised in the foster care system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think the other complexity is this relationship that I had with our foster daughter's birth mother. You know, I, I will never forget that the day I met her, uh, we were... Coco is the name I give our foster daughter in the book and her mother's name is Evelyn. And of course I changed everyone's names for privacy reasons, but Coco, we picked her up from the hospital when she was three days old. Talk about that feeling of of picking up a child or bringing a child (laughs) home from the hospital. Like we knew how to put her in her car seat. That was about it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We we learned how to give her a bottle. We learned infant CPR and that was like the extent of what we knew. um, You know, we were, we were madly and fiercely in love with her from the beginning. Foster parents are asked to love children that um, don't belong to them, that aren't theirs as if they are theirs. Um, so I think that's the most beautiful part of foster care is that you have this expanded sense of what counts as family and who, who you're called to tend. Loving Coco was super easy. Loving her mother was much more challenging and, and more profound. And I remember the day that I met Evelyn, it was in the courtroom, which is another issue. Like here you are, this poor mother gave birth two weeks before. She hasn't seen her daughter. And we meet after going through security at a courthouse in a random hallway with nowhere to sit, no privacy at all. And um, Evelyn asked if she could hold her daughter, which, of course, I I handed her Coco and watched her just cuddle her to her chest and whisper, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And that was my first sign. Okay, this is different than what I thought. You know, this is a, a different challenge than what I thought. These are mm-hmm. more complex relationships than what I thought. And um, I need to learn to love Evelyn as much as I love Coco. You know, and it's easier in a way, and I certainly heard other foster parents say this, if you can demonize the foster, I mean, the, uh, the birth parent, if, you know, if the foster parent has has badly abused the child, but even in those situations, demonizing them is, uh, is not in the best interest of the child necessarily. But I truly appreciated how you showed Evelyn to be a, a, a human, a fully fleshed out human. And to, and she, you also showed that she truly loved her child, perhaps inadequately, not even perhaps, let's just say inadequately uh, and not always in a good and not always in a productive way, particularly towards the end. But you showed her and, and you did a good job of showing the nuance, which is quite frankly hard to do, especially when you're the one who stands to lose. In this, this case, you were fiercely in love with Coco. Um, I very much enjoyed seeing how your relationship with Evelyn grew and it seemed to, it seemed to grow incrementally. And then at some point it seemed to really deepen what helped you 
focus on that and, and what changed, if anything? A really good therapist. <laughs> I know. I got to tell you, I loved your therapist. I yeah, thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, gosh, I wish she had given her name in the book. I would have. <laughs> I'll give you her name. Her name is Juliana Jones Munson. She's an incredible, incredible person. And um, she she is what helped me walk through this experience. You know, I called her once. I felt like I had the feeling, and I don't know if other foster parents feel this, but I had the feeling like I'm going to die if I have to give Coco up. Like I didn't know if I could survive it if I had to return her. And I was talking with Juliana, my therapist, and I was telling her, I just want to keep her. I just want to keep her. I just want to keep her. And she said that I needed to turn my thinking 180 degrees around that here I was, I was hoping that Evelyn would fail. I didn't want her to be able to succeed in her treatment plan. I wanted her to disappear. And she said, you can't wish harm on another person in order to get what you want. That's not who you are. That's not who we need to be on the planet. That That's not right human relations. You have to start supporting and rooting for this person who's been through so much pain, who's showing the desire to change her life in order to get her daughter back. You have to support that. You have to do that for two reasons. One, you want to be able to walk away from this not bitter and mean. And two, if you get to keep Coco, you want to be able to look her in the eye and say, your mother loved you. We loved your mother. She did everything she could. We supported her in every possible way. But you know, she couldn't do it. And you have to be telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And then she said these two other things, your life isn't more important than her life, which is profound and ethical and radically Mm -hmm. true. And this child might save Evelyn's life and you don't need your life saved. So that was the beginning of me really claiming my love for Evelyn as a practice. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't like, oh, Juliana told me these hard truths. And Mm -hmm. then I was like, oh, I love her. It's great. You know, I had to meditate. I had to do mindfulness practice. I had to like commit to championing this other person. And I think Evelyn could feel when I made that switch. And when I started supporting her and wanting her to be well, and when I started loving her as much as I love Coco, and our relationship became really profound. And I remember when the foster care system decided we were headed towards reunification, and they suddenly sped up all the visits and they started overnights, and it was very disorienting. And one of the first overnights was on Mother's Day weekend. And here I was, you know, I was thinking that. Coco was my daughter, but Mm -hmm. she was going to spend Mother's Day with her mother, her actual mother, who was Evelyn. Um, And nobody in the foster care system saw me as a mother or saw me as a mother figure. I think they really saw me as staff, as kind of babysitting time. And But Evelyn saw me as a mother, and she actually gave me my first Mother's Day present. She gave me this tiny teacup, um, pink teacup with a yellow rose in it, and wished me Happy Mother's Day. And that was one of the most beautiful gifts I've ever been given. I can absolutely see that. You know, it's, it's something you said I want to go back to is the complexity of, of root. you want to root for the birth parent. You're supposed to root for the birth parent. I mean, that is your role as a foster parent, you know, and you want to. And yet, if you root for and if she, for lack of a better word, to, to follow the analogy, wins, then you lose. It, it, that's certainly yes. a way you lose the child you love. On the other hand, if you root against her, are you really winning? Right, exactly. You are not going to be able to walk away clean either way. I think winning and losing mm-hmm. is a hard way to look at it. You know, I think there's some, you talk on your on this podcast a lot about adoption. And I think open adoption has some really powerful lessons or some powerful models for what family can look like. 
uh, that the foster care system could learn from. I think mm -hmm. if it wasn't that you hand your child over and then now you can't go to court anymore, you can't have access to information, you can't talk to her unless the birth mother lets you. Um, what if what if we kept that expansive sense of family? What if I always got to be part of Coco's life? I don't mean in an invasive way, like Evelyn is required to be close to me, mm -hmm. but in the sense that like the more support a child has, the better. And so if we framed it differently, if we framed it like here's a community of support and you can have lifelong access to this community of support, that would be incredible because Evelyn had so much support while Coco was in our care. She had drug counseling, she had mental health counseling, she had social workers, she had CASA, she had job help, she had housing help, she had someone to help her with her finances and she had us taking care of her child. And then the minute reunification happened, all of those supports disappeared. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that means Evelyn's on her own. And even more distressing, it means Coco's on her own. You know, there was legislation passed in 2018 uh, that's kind of working its way to be implemented now. Implementation is happening as, as we speak, and it's called the Family First Act. And in theory, it's supposed to address the exact point you just mentioned, which is that we, and even go further, that the point being that we need to continue to offer support to families to prevent their children from entering foster care to begin with. And also that some of, if we look at the fact that how much support, both financial and Coco was an infant, but if she needed therapy, uh, if she was older and had needed therapy or, or physical therapy or occupational therapy, whatever, tutors or whatever, that would all be covered. And yet for birth parents and for birth families who are struggling, there isn't support. You know, I guess it remains to be seen. We're too early in this. And quite frankly, having been around in, in these alternate family functions, family, uh, foster families, adoptive families, things tend to run in cycles. So it's I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure how it will all play out. But in theory, it's supposed to address some of what you're talking about, which is mm -hmm. that we need to continue. And there's also a real move. And you probably were maybe part of this. Uh, it goes by different names, co-parenting, partnership parenting, shared parenting. Was that something that was a part of your training? No. It's interesting. It's uh, and 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 you became you took placement of Coco in what year? Um, in two thousand eighteen. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, that was certainly shared parenting. Uh, uh, going by any of the variations of names was around then, and it is well not for life, but but it is part of what you were just describing. That part of the role of a foster parent is to be, for a lack of a better word, a mentor for the mm -hmm. birth parent. Now, and honestly, this, you know, if, if there's extreme abusive situations, this is not really part of the equation. But in cases where it's neglect or substance abuse, things like that, but it doesn't go on for life. And 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 quite frankly, I don't even think the family first money goes on for life. So the root of the problem you just described <laughs> continues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. Helpful to know about those things. And I think um, Evelyn and I developed a good relationship and we did have not, I wouldn't say partnership parenting or shared parenting, but she, she knew I loved her daughter and she wanted me to be part of her life. And she, we talked about that, but then, you know, that was when she was doing well. And then when things shifted, um, she, mm -hmm. she did not. Mm -mm. No. And that would be a typical experience.
Let me pause for a moment to tell you about a free education resource. Thanks to the Jockey Bean Family Foundation, we are thrilled to offer you a free online course through our adoptioned.org learning platform. When you go to, this is a shortened link, so it's a bit.ly link, bit.ly slash jbf support, you can see five courses, one of which is seven core issues in adoption and foster care. This course will equip you with expert-based, trauma-informed information that strengthens and inspires foster kinship and adoptive families, as well as professionals. Each course is free when you use the coupon code JBFSTRONG at checkout. So check it out. Thanks. Something else you talk about in the book, and maybe even it's at the heart of the book, and it's it's it is on the I, I I'm not sure if it would be the subtitle or not. Uh, Stranger care is the title, but then the the second section, a memoir of mothering what isn't ours. I love that. It's it's it seems like the essence of foster parenting in a way that you're you are asked to love this child and to love and commit to her in a way especially from a, a newborn infant standpoint that she needed to develop for emotional emotional health and yet there were, she didn't belong to you and there was no promise and in fact in the end she didn't belong to you mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think i mean that's the most beautiful part of foster care and the most heartbreaking part which is yeah. that it shows up human heart is capable of, which is loving anyone. Um, you know, I felt people always talk about, well, when I had my kid, my heart expanded. I never knew love, like when I gave birth to my son, you know, whatever kind of language they use. And as a person who wasn't a parent, that always bothered me because I thought, <laughs> don't tell me what my heart is capable of. You know, you don't know what I'm, what kind of love I'm capable of. Um, or or when, don't diminish my life by, by saying yes, that I'm missing exactly. this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's such a weird thing to say, but um, when, when, Coco was placed in our arms in the hospital, I did feel that heart expanse. But I don't I think we misunderstand that expansion. And we think it has something to do with DNA or biology or or um, just becoming a parent. But really, it shows us what the human heart is able to do. And I think my love for Coco, I heard the universe saying, you know, here, tend this. And I think we can we can have our hearts expand for anything. It can be for the earth, for refugee, for stranger, for um, neighbor for enemy, you know, it shows us the kinds of love we're capable of practicing. And what I love about foster care is that it expands that sense of family. It sees family as a practice, mothering as a practice, you know, it's something you do, not something you just are or are born into. But the system itself champions biology over anything, you know, um, in Idaho, Idaho is a reunification state. And so I think our statistics are 73% of children are reunified with their birth families. And then they think, you know, that's the end. I've done my part. I've, re- I've returned this child to their birth family, all supports and um, mm-hmm. success, you know. Uh, but I don't think that biology guarantees anything. That's why the foster care system exists. Biology doesn't mm-hmm. guarantee that people are going to love one another or have the resources they need to love one another. So how can we, how, how can we have both that expansive sense of kinship mm-hmm. and this very narrow view of family kind of championed by the same system? It's very perplexing. It is very perplexing. And it's something, honestly, I think about all the time. And it is so, and, and no matter how you think about the solutions, there is no perfect solution. It's like we're working in it with, with broken humans in many ways. And, and, and to expect there to be a, a rainbows and unicorn ending, the happy ending we all want, 
I, I haven't, I know I'm sounding awfully pessimistic right now, but <laughs> I don't know that there is that, you know, I, I think, and this, actually, this is going to lend itself. Uh, I want you to read another section, page yes. 241. Okay. I think that will enlighten this part of our conversation. Great. I couldn't stop thinking about having to give her back to Evelyn. Couldn't stop picturing people coming to my door, making me hand Coco over, watching them drive her away. We'd been told from the beginning that the goal was reunification. And now I could see that everything was designed to support Evelyn, to protect her rights, to make sure the state would not be sued for stealing someone's child. The process was not child-centered. It was biological family-centered. It was get this case off your desk centered. It wasn't about Coco at all. Yeah, that sums up some of what you were saying before, I think, that it didn't feel to you. And, and do you still feel like the, the, the system is not child-centered? I 100% feel like the system's not child-centered. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it is about protecting biological parents' constitutional rights to parent their children. And I think that's important. You know, I think another section you want me to read is about yeah. that. We don't want to live... Let's let's move okay, to that. Yeah, that. yeah, that's on page two for the audience listening in. That's on page two sixty one. Yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. Mm -hmm. A government agency with the power to take children away from their parents is dangerous. What is there to stop social workers from deciding parents are too poor or too black or too gay or too political or too feminist or too atheist to be quote good parents? You don't want social workers who think they know what's best and best is what looks like them and talks like them and prays like them. And that gets to the heart of what qualifies as good parenting and what is good enough. It is good enough enough. There was a section in the book that I thought, I thought it was absolutely the perfect synopsis of this. And, and I so appreciated that you included it. It was in the, in the section Evelyn and the uh, person from the, well, it wasn't the state, but the person who was in charge of driving her around, bringing her to meetings and stuff, were getting ready to leave and, and go to a coffee shop or whatever for a visitation period. And you had brought the car seat and handed it to, and the person who was with the, the agency didn't have the seat, the, the base for this, the car seat. And you said, you don't, do you have the base? And the person said, no, she doesn't need it. And she said, Evelyn, you know how to put it in. And Evelyn strapped it in. You were watching. And she strapped it, the seatbelt over the car seat, not the correct way. And it wasn't tight. And you were like, oh, my gosh. So you called the you called your social worker. And you said, oh, she didn't strap her in correctly. And, and you said in the book, you could almost hear her eyes roll. And it was such the perfect thing. We are trained in our socioeconomic demographic. Those of us who have read all the parenting books, or at least half of them, we know how to use a car seat. That is that is important. That makes a good parent. And to not do so, that makes you a bad parent. But I love that when you could just hear the social worker go, oh, get over yourself. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think she was saying that most of the time. You know, uh, a couple of things that I realized is one, anytime I tried to advocate for um, Coco, like we had trouble with uh, our CASA worker. She was lying on her official reports and not doing yeah, visits. More than trouble. Advocate. She was just yeah. 
yeah, terrible. Just Go ahead. wrong. And, wrong. Um, but anytime we were, we would call to say like, I think, you know, Coco deserves the advocate that she's entitled to. We were accused of sabotage. Like literally mm-hmm. uh, the head of CASA said, um, if we suspect you're trying to sabotage this, we'll come right into your house and take that child away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was these other smaller ways like, okay, that's not the right way to put a car seat. I'm not so psyched that you're blowing smoke in this baby's face. You know, yeah, all that, these kind of that's uh, another bougie, big one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all yes. these kind of bougie, bougie. concerns, you know. Yeah. And um, I remember the day that the social worker was arguing in court for reunification, arguing, 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 arguing for it. And she knew Eric and I were upset. She kind of pulled us in a room after court and she said, I know you're upset, but look, she's doing everything we've asked her to do. And remember the the bar is minimal parenting ability, which is one step above do no harm. And Mm -hmm. I was very distraught and I knew our social worker had kids and she has biological kids and foster kids and kids she's adopted. And I said, would you give any one of your kids to Evelyn? And she said, and I'll never forget this. I wouldn't trust Evelyn with my dog for an hour. Mm-hmm. And I said, but you're going to give this baby to her, this baby that can't speak, that's, you know, that can disappear, that isn't in school, that there'll be no eyes on her. And she said, yeah, that's not the, that's not the rubric. That's not the criteria mm-hmm. we use. And so I think, you know, that gets to this idea where we don't want states taking, we don't want the state taking people's babies. And also we don't want children being put in unsafe environments. So how do you navigate those two things? Mm-hmm. What, what do you do? And, and it is true that children are taken from parents for not good reason. Poverty is it can often mimic neglect. And where there's their perfectly functioning family and children are removed because the state comes in and sees what they deem, you know, a bunch of dirty dishes and, and cockroaches. And they decide that that is what constitutes good or doesn't constitute good enough parenting. Or a mother who loses a, one child and gives birth to another one. By loses, I mean one who has taken into foster care and has not been reunified. And she gives birth to another one. There have certainly been times where without even much looking into whether or not she has changed, whether or not she has been able to stay clean or whatever. And then the child is automatically removed because the state doesn't want to be in the position of risking another child. So it goes both ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting because we've had, I love this sentence that you said, I just wrote it down, poverty can mimic neglect. You know, it's, it's so true. There was a really um, amazing article in the New York times that called foster care, uh, the racism that operates in foster care, the new Jane Crow and talked about, you know, how race and racism um, shape how social workers, whether they take a child into care or not, which it was, was really fascinating. But that idea that poverty can mimic neglect is really important. Well, you know, let's go back to the power of state. There was, you know, I I always remind people, well, first of all, there is no crystal ball. And and when a child is killed in foster care, of course, it makes, it's like the plane crash. It makes all the headlines. And and then we all were convinced that these social workers are not being strict enough. They're not removing. But we, that is a very, I mean, imagining, of course, you have experienced this where you, they didn't necessarily come in and take, but they insisted that you give back. And can you imagine a scenario for for our listeners where somebody comes in and says, for something either true or untrue, that you are not a fit parent. I'll give an example. And this is a very minor one. This was a number of years ago. And I get a call from a friend and she is hysterical. And she had been out walking her son. 
he was uh, less than a year old. He was in a stroller and it was a very cold day. And it was, it was a really cold day. And she had been pushing him because she was going stir crazy being indoors. So she was pushing him in the stroller and he would not keep his socks on. He wouldn't keep his gloves on. He was making a game of pulling them off, chunking them on, you know, so she kept pulling him up, picking him up, putting him back on. Finally, she thought, well, it's going to get cold enough and then he'll, he'll keep them on. And shortly thereafter, a woman was walking the other way and saw that her child was in a stroller and was not wearing uh, gloves or or booties of any sort. And she stopped her and she goes, what type of mother are you? And she pulls out her phone and says, I'm going to call DSS. I mean, you're walking this child in in this unbelievable weather. You shouldn't be outside. It's too cold for a child. You don't have them dressed. Well, my friend panics and runs with the stroller, gets back to her house. She is sobbing and she calls me and she goes, what do I do? What do I do? And I thought, I said, okay, look, I mean, realistically, I mean, I don't think they're going to find you for one, but I mean, come on, I think you're pretty okay. (laughs) But it stuck with me all of these years. And I thought she was the most attentive, quite frankly, almost paranoidly attentive mom uh, in our friend circle, you know, and I thought, I mean, it could happen. It could happen that somebody would come in and say, were you walking your child? Even if the chances are good that she would, the child would not have been taken away for too long. But yeah, that kid could have been put in foster care. She would have had to go fight to get the child back. And that's, we have, that, that is a very, that's a huge power that we're giving the government. And we don't want them to, to misuse the power. But on the other hand, you know, what makes good enough parenting? Uh, it's just, right. it's really hard. And that's, I think, you know, that's, that's part of why that sentence is important. Poverty can mimic neglect, which is that we, we have a system filled with social workers who I'm sure went into this work for the best possible reasons. You know, they're good people who see the worst that we do to one another every day and they're mm-hmm. overworked and underfunded and under-resourced. And again, yes. we've asked foster care to pick up the pieces of these other systems that don't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, if we, if we were, if you want to fix foster care, then let's fix poverty. If you want to fix foster yes. care, let's, let's fix housing. If you want to fix foster care, let's fix mental health systems. Mm-hmm. By the time a, a family ends up in foster care, for the most part, so much has gone wrong. It's so far down river, you know, we got to start much, much further mm-hmm. up river, but you know, I've had, we were, we started the process in Oregon. We ended up getting licensed in Idaho and we, we had Coco come into our care in Idaho. And now she, she's in back in care, but in another state, which I'm not allowed to name, but I've gotten to see three different states op- foster care system and they are wildly different. That's another thing. Like it would be better, I think, to have these federal or something that, that unifies across state lines. So the ways that Idaho worked really well this other state fails at the way that Idaho did not work well. This other state does well. So, you know, Idaho is a super reunification state. This other state is known as a baby snatcher state. They take people's kids for no reason. So it's, there's every, it seems like every, every foster care system has its own, own struggles. And here the most vulnerable families, the most vulnerable children are trapped in this system. And it was hard. It was hard for me to navigate as a white woman overeducated with money and resources and social capital. Mm -hmm. Like it's not really about me. It's about the children that are in this system and trying to navigate and trying to be safe. And I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to be a a society that takes care of the most vulnerable? And, And what does that look like? And what does that look like? And and you were and your point so well taken that here you are a, a I wouldn't say overeducated but I would say an educated white woman 
with money and privilege. And, mm-hmm. and you found the system overwhelming. Can you imagine what, well, honestly, what Evelyn must have felt, but also yes, exactly. Yeah. That, you know, and, and here's the other thing is that we often, uh, part of the, for those who don't know, part of the foster care system, when a child is taken away, the birth family is given what's usually called euphemistically, perhaps a plan. And the plan involves getting their act together, basically, to be able to parent the child in a successful way. It often has things like taking, you know, uh, going to rehab or if that substance abuse is an issue or, or and committing to a 12-step program or some type of program, getting housing, getting a job, getting transportation and things like this. But it also requires uh, visit, showing up to your visitation and things like that. And I will say Idaho seemed to do a fairly good job of this, of realizing the uh, the difficulty that's, that working the plan can place on birth parents, perhaps not so much understanding the, the, the burden it places on foster. But other states don't do that, and they may have taking a parenting class. I know of situations where the birth parent is expected to take a parenting class in one part of town, and then at the same day of this, that parenting class, they need to be going to substance abuse class. And then another part, another time they've got to be going to visitation and they have to get there. The the birth parent doesn't have transportation. So the birth parent is taking buses. They don't don't live in a place where it's easy public transportation. So all of this, for them to get to that substance abuse class, it may take them an hour both ways. And then to get to visitation, both. And then they miss work for this and they get fired. And, and it's a, it's a compounding problem. And the system doesn't take that into consideration. And the whole time they're doing this, they risk losing their children permanently. That's I'm so glad you draw attention to that. I, I think of sitting in the court uh, we were in twin falls, Idaho, where the court would happen and sitting in that courtroom where they, you're supposed to be there at 9am. Okay. So I, I live two hours from twin. So I had to get up very early and get there, but everyone who's called to court that day has to be there at 9am. You don't know if you're going to be called into the, mm-hmm. by the judge at nine or nine Oh five or 10 or 11 mm-hmm. or one or two. And so here, um, you know, I'm a writer and I'm a teacher. So I have a flexible schedule and I also have a partner at home who could take care of Coco when I went to court. Here's Evelyn who has to work, who has to go to all those counseling appointments. You've talked about parenting class. She has to take classes about addiction. She, She had a very, very full schedule, but she has to spend three to four to five hours sitting in this random courtroom hallway waiting to be called by the judge. That to me captures the kind of double bind or the catch 22 of of being in the system where there's all these hoops you have to jump through Mm -hmm. and the hoops get in the way of other hoops and you're supposed to keep a job, but you better not get fired because you're waiting in court and you're supposed to go to these parenting classes, but you also have to get a job and you're supposed to make enough money to support your kid and you also have to find housing and show up. It's just like, it's a kind of a no-win situation. And especially without the support, Evelyn had some support, but and certainly had some support from you. But foster parents are not intended to be that functional of a support of of how do they get how do they get cars? How do they get transport? I mean, how do they get how do they keep a job? Uh, how do they get more than a minimum wage job? And you know, working forty hours a week and not making enough to meet your plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's. The- structural questions, you know, and mm-hmm. at, at one point she was working a job, she wasn't making enough money. And so she pulled 
Coco out of daycare to save money and then ended up inviting someone into her home who was not safe to act as daycare. You know, so she made a dis- an economic decision that she thought was going to be good for her family, but it ended up being another the, the kind of beginning undoing of this careful support structure that she had that she had built. And that's because we we ask so many families in our country to live on the edge, the edge of poverty, mm-hmm. the edge of the edge. And mm-hmm. one tiny thing can send the whole the whole structure falling. When you're teetering on the edge, it doesn't take much to blow you over. It just doesn't. And and so many of these families, they they and no matter what that you as a foster parent can do, they're still going to be on the edge. Yeah. Hey guys, I hope you are enjoying this show as much as I'm enjoying it. It probably shows that I'm enjoying it. Would you please tell your friends about Sarah's new book, Stranger Care, and about the conversation we're having here today on Creating the Family Podcast. Our passion as an, as an organization is strengthening and inspiring more foster and adoptive families, and we rely on you guys to help us by spreading the word about our weekly podcast. So please let your friends know about it, and particularly let them know about this interview. I, I wanted to talk about, without giving everything of the, of the story away, although you've shared some of it already, but the idea of keeping siblings together. Uh, Coco had an uh, older, I assume it was a half-brother, 12 years or 11 to 12 years older than her. You know, and this may be still very tender for you, but it is very much a part of the foster care system now that we keep siblings together. That's almost become a mantra that, uh, that, that and I think you would probably say overrides all else. But it very much, and it's based on some decent research of, you know, a genetic continuity and genetic mirrors and things like that. So let's talk a little. What are your thoughts on the keeping siblings together part? And you could decide how much you want to share uh, of the ending of the story. <laughs> yeah, sure. I do have a I do have a complex relationship with that idea. Of course, if it's better for children to be with their siblings, I'm in support of that. Um, I don't know what genetic continuity is. I'll look I'll look that up. But well, so, yeah, the idea that are genetic mirrors where where you yeah. you have connection to those who share your genes or you know share your background, your history, your culture. And again, that's one of the ways where the, the system asks us to put biology aside, but champions biology in this fundamental way. I think yeah. it's important to keep siblings together that have a relationship or that have had a relationship um, before. That seems like how heartbreaking. You know, I think I remember we did in our training an exercise about expected loss and unexpected loss and how foster children in the foster care system, everything is unexpected loss. They lose their house, they lose their parents, they lose their school, they lose their neighborhood, they lose, you know, everything that's familiar to them, they lose everything. And so of course, if you can make it so they don't lose their sibling, um, how how powerful and important and healing, yes, keep siblings together. You know, we got so many calls for sibling sets. That's what the language in the, in the foster <laughs> care system, they call it sibling groups, sibling sets. Um, so I think that that's very important. Um, in Coco's case, she has a brother who was in foster care in another state. And the reason that Evelyn ended up in my state is because she was fleeing that other state's foster care system. She wanted, she didn't want this baby to be taken into care, even though she was really struggling at the time that the baby was born. Um, so she fled to another state. And this is another way that we could make amends in the foster care system, which is improving state to state communication. But of course, she ended up giving birth early and Coco was taken into care 
anyway. So at that point, Idaho did not pursue her relationship with her brother in this other place. They kept Coco in Idaho and the brother remained in this other state. But when things started falling apart again for Evelyn after reunification, she started moving back and forth between the two states again. And in Idaho, there were many open CPS reports on Evelyn, but in Idaho, if they don't locate the parent within five days, they close the report, which is- That is unbelievable. Mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. So all Evelyn had to do was stay out of sight for five days, which is, I could stay out of sight for five days. You know, <laughs> I, I don't think that's that that hard. But so she was going back and forth, but eventually um, Coco got taken back into state care in this other state. And um, they placed her with her brother- with whom she had no relationship at all. And had never even seen, he had, she was born, she had never even seen, they had never met. I think they'd met once for two weeks. Uh, And then she had never met this other family that, that she was placed with. And so I, I just think that that raises questions about family. Like we were the only home she'd known. She had lived with Eric and me longer than she'd lived anywhere. We had raised her for the first year of her life, but this, this uh, non-existent relationship that she had with a half brother mm-hmm. counted more than our, our, our relationship with her, which, you know, listeners can decide what they think about that. Um, of course, Eric and I would have been happy to, to support her developing a relationship with her brother. Mm-hmm. We are now trained in open adoption and I have a very expansive sense of, of what counts as family and what mm-hmm. relationships are important. And, and I'm open to tending and supporting all kinds of relationships, but it's been difficult. And it is difficult. And and it's the role, And you know, back in the day, back um, maybe 20 years ago, foster parents who developed too close of a relationship, the child was taken from them because they didn't, the system didn't want to have the the issues that of of the the complications that love and attachment would, would produce. And we don't want to go back to that because we do know how important it is that you and Eric were able to love so deeply. And well, we guess we don't know, but I can tell you that it does matter to eventually it will have had some impact on the, on Coco's life. So we don't want to go back to, to disregarding that, but then we, we penalize, we then the focus on biology over all else in some ways discourages it. It's, um, again, so many of the things we're talking about don't have easy answers. No. Mm-mm. You know, and as I was reading the book, in some ways, you know, as creating a family, the organization that I am with, you are our demographic. Our mission is to be able to reach out and help and support foster and adoption as well as kinship families during this time. In so many ways, when I'm reading, I was reading the book, I've it was hard. I felt discouraged. I felt like we failed you. We didn't get you there. We were not, we, we could have helped. I mean, I don't, we couldn't have taken away the pain. We could have helped you recognize the risks going in, although it sounds like you were in some ways aware of the risk, but it was, and, and I, I'm assuming that you did your research and, and you were reaching out and trying to, so it was, it, it was a kind of a wake up call that we have a long way to go. I'm so glad to know about your organization now. And, you know, I, I didn't do as much research as I, I should have, even given the fact that I'm an academic, you think I would have done more <laughs> research. But I was so, I was so set on being a foster parent. And so Eric and I were so set yeah. on adopting that there's a kind of denial, you know, you can yes. hear the information and you're like, well, it won't work. They won't be that way for me, or it can turn out mm-hmm. differently for me. But, mm-hmm. you know, I wrote this book. Um, I hope that 
I hope your listeners will will read this book. I don't mean this as a, a plug for the book, although that's what it sounds like. Yeah. But I wrote well, it as a love I will letter. plug the book. <laughs> okay, thank you. But I wrote it as a love letter to Coco. I wrote it so that um, to mother her when I'm not allowed to mother her anymore. And I also yeah. wrote it as a love letter to foster parents. You know, I want people. People sometimes think because my experience was so difficult with the foster care system that I'm somehow anti foster care. But yeah. Eric and I keep our license open. We. We are open to becoming foster parents again. Of course, we keep it open because we're trying to bring Coco home. We want her to come back to us. But we, I also do it because I think being a foster parent is the most risky and the most mm-hmm. beautiful and the most profound thing you can do. When else can you answer the phone and someone mm-hmm. needs help and you can offer it? I mean, it's very direct and it's very beautiful. And it's it will show you kinds of love and relationships that you you might not be able to experience any other way. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the other the other thing is where I found support. I wish I had known about your organization. I think I would have felt very supported by it, but I also felt support in the natural world. So mm-hmm. I do a lot of writing in the book about the mothering that happens in the natural world and the tending of strangers that happens in the natural world. I took Coco on walks every day and, you know, I got to introduce her to the world. This is the moon. This is the wind. These are mountains. These are wildflowers. These are, these are elk. And I found when she was with us, I, I found solace in this idea that we all come from stars mm-hmm. and we're all made of the same material. So wherever we find ourselves, we're home. Um, and when she was gone, I found solace in the natural world too, where it held me in my grief. So part part of, of the book is that offering to remember that the world is a, a place of love and that mm-hmm. we can learn from nature how to love each other better. And we can learn from the foster care system how to love each other better. And we can learn from these children in our care, how to, how to better mm-hmm. love one another. So my hope is that there's a, there's a message of love at its heart. There very much is. And I, I was going to ask you, and you've already answered it. It felt like this was, uh, an, a, in part, an attempt to reach out to Coco and let her know how much she was loved. And when you were writing it, did, were you hoping that she at some point will read it and understand what uh, the love you felt for her? I hope so. You know, at the very end, right before the epilogue, I said, I hope, I hope someday I'll read this to you in person or we'll read it together in person. And I I wrote it for her. I wrote it Mm -hmm. um, so that she might know she's loved and that she might know she belongs here on this planet Mm -hmm. and that she was, Mm -hmm. that we fought for her. And I liked writing it. People have asked me like, how did you write it? This is so hard. And you kind of wrote it in real time. But when I write or when I talk about her, it brings her close to me. I feel her close and, and that, that feels good to me. So it felt like an exercise of possibility. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, would not happen without the generous support of our partners. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those who are on an adoption or fostering journey. One such partner is Spence Chapin. As a recipient of the Human Rights Campaign, All Children's, All Families Seal of Recognition, Spence Chapin is committed to equality in adoption and is proud of the many children they have placed in loving, stable, same-sex households. Spence Chapin's international adoption programs in South Africa and Colombia encourages applicants from all types of families. You can get more information by going to their website, spence-chapin.org backslash LGBTQ adoption to learn more. Enjoy. Do you have, and can you share, do you know what's happened to Coco? Um, I can't talk about it 
that much. Um, I can say she is back in foster care and it's very complicated and she's in another state. Um, I can say that we're continuing to fight for her, that we'd like to um, be her permanent home if that's needed. And then the, the good news I can say is that we Zoom with her every Thursday morning. So we get to see her and she's happy and giggly and delightful. And we wear funny hats and uh, we play, I, we've sent her games and toys that we have as well. So we can do parallel play over Zoom and um, we play hide and seek and we read books and it's this beautiful 30 minute connection. We've been doing it for several months now. And Oh, I'm so um, glad. It's, it's really, I, it's a, a real gift to me. Of course, you know, when the screen goes dark, it feels like losing her all over again, but it's worth it to get to see her. And well, and by establishing a relationship, you may be able to be a support for her foster or adoptive family, and then they will be less frightened of you. And, and so, you know, by doing that, you may be opening doors or keeping doors open that, that will pay dividends in the future for, for her as as well as for you. So did you, have you accepted any other foster placements? I know you said you kept your, you're keeping your license open in part because you want to be able to be a, a place for Coco if the need arises or maybe the need is there, but if, if the stars align, but would you accept another foster placement? And then my next question, but answer the foster one first, I wanted to not talk to you about adoption, but first the foster placement. Yes. One. We have not said yes to another foster placement yet, although um, that's not out of the question. So what about adopting? You went in wanting to mother. I would hate to see you, quite frankly, give up on the idea because your love for Coco was so profound and so, and, and Eric's as well. I mean, it truly brought tears to my eyes. No, thank you, Dawn. I'm glad that came across because we we love her and we continue to love her. And like you said, we'll always champion her, whether she's with us or not. We're yeah. here to support her. That's our our goal. Um, we ended up uh, working with an adoption agency, a nonprofit adoption agency in Boise, Idaho, called A New Beginning, which is an ethical, incredible, supportive. I can't say enough good things about this agency. They were fantastic. They also have a foster to adopt program, but we adopted an infant. And this infant was born three weeks ago, actually three weeks ago <laughs> yesterday. Um, we matched with a birth mom. His birth mom is extraordinary. Just like one of the most beautiful, amazing, generous, kind, funny, loving humans I've ever met. And um, we have him home and he's actually in the other room right now. <laughs> so I'm doing book tour stuff as a brand, brand, brand new mom, but um, it's, oh. it's worth it. It's wonderful to have so much joy. And um, it's just been a really... So much joy, so much love, and such an expansive sense of family. Open adoption is a beautiful thing. You know, our child will mm -hmm. always know he's adopted. His middle name is for his birth mother. He'll always know his birth mother and her daughter and her mother. And it's it's mm -hmm. just been really a powerful experience. What we tell people is that there is no loss. The more love that is in your child, the more people in your child's life that love them, that can only be good. So <laughs> your son, exactly. uh, your son will be exactly. surrounded by love in many different ways. Well, mm -hmm. Sarah Santellis, thank you so much for writing the book. The book is Stranger Care. I cannot recommend it enough. In fact, not only is this book great, but I have added to my must read list, uh, Draw Your Weapons and Breaking Up with God, your, two of your other books. Thank she has you. a number of other books as well, in addition to those, but those were the ones whose titles uh, attracted me the most. So I thought, okay, I'm, I've already added those to my list. The writing is superb, the emotions 
You captured in a very profound way the essence of, of both the, the good as well as the struggle of, of foster care. And I will say that when I was finishing the book, I had my clinics out and I'm bawling. And, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and my husband is looking over going, why do you read books like this? And I went, <laughs> I've got to read this one. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, anyway. Thank you. So thank, thank you for you. talking with me. Yes, thank you. And for our audience, thank you for listening. And I will see you next week.